we're about as, as a church. We're about making disciples. We're about loving the Lord with everything we got. And we devote ourselves uh, to certain things. So, we're a little thinner this morning. Our numbers. Oh, Rob's sitting up nice. That's good. Uh, and that's okay. We uh, know that some different things are happening in our world right now with this uh, potential for the virus breaking out. And uh, as we begin this morning, I would like to spend some time just praying about that. Uh, I don't know how it's hitting you and how it's becoming real. Some of you, it's becoming real when they canceled March Madness. Some, it's becoming real when you couldn't find toilet paper in the grocery store or other various things. I don't quite follow the logic of all the things that people choose to hoard and stock up on, but that's okay. And uh, if you need extra toilet paper, I could spare a couple rolls. You let me know. I'm here to serve. All joking aside, though, we want everyone to be safe. We want to protect our older members, especially. We want people to... Um, not give in to panic or fear at this time either. And so what do we need to do? In times like these, the most appropriate thing we always do is to pray. Uh, Norm gave me some information uh, today. Uh, the president declared, the president of the United States declared Sunday, March 15th to be a national day of prayer. Um, and he's reminded us that the entire country throughout its history, the United States, has looked to God for strength and protection in times like these. And so how appropriate that we, as His church, would spend time praying for blessing. Because, you know, maybe we don't carry a whole lot of anxiety uh, about this, but we can see it all around us in this culture. And people don't know the Lord the way that we know and don't have a relationship. And these can be very scary and trying times. So will you join me as we pray? Lord, you know the needs of everyone here in this room. You know the needs of this church. You know the needs of this community here. Uh, in the outlying areas, you know the needs of the state of Oregon for this nation. You know the needs of this world. And Lord, I just pray for your protection, for health and for healing and for blessing. I pray that this uh, coronavirus, this COVID-19, it does not have the impact that people are worried about and think is going to happen. That somehow in the midst of uh, difficulty and trials that we face, that you will work this for our good and blessing in some way. If nothing more, to just help uh, humanity in our own small way to wake up to how small we are and how needy we are and to wake up to how big you are and how you are able to get us through anything when we put our, our trust in you, that you have all the strength that we need and all the answers, and all the encouragement, and all the faith, and all the healing that we need. And so, Lord, we just ask for your help in every way that we need help. Bless us and keep us. 
Let us put our trust in you more and more each day. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we are continuing in our series in Acts, and uh, I think it's going pretty well. I've really been enjoying it. But certain things are, are standing in our way a little bit, and they're starting to trip up the momentum. You know, uh, we have a thinner crowd this morning. That's okay. Be home. Be safe. Your church loves you. Your church understands. But someone else is sabotaging what I'm trying to do in the sermons here. I don't know who is putting sleepy time tea out there. I have enough trouble as it is. All right, last week, as you remember, we were uh, looking at some ways that uh, we face the danger of presumption and how, remember the story about Herod Agrippa and how he presumed to be the one in control and how he initiated this wave of, um, of persecution against the church. Um, and although Herod, he might be an extreme example of the danger of presumption, I think as Christians of privilege, we also need to revisit our presumptions, the things that we presume about from time to time, because we too have certain blind spots. Blind spots, And uh, I invited us to look at some of the ways that we make presumptions, the educated with, with people who have had less opportunity for education, the rich with the poor, the powerful with people who are on the margins, uh, the self-righteous with about anyone else. It's the way that pride works. So we have certain blind spots that we need to uh, be aware of and ask ourselves questions, hard questions from time to time. And some of the questions I think that are good to ask are things like these. Who has something to teach me? If you have a spirit of humility, you're never going to be and have a lack of teachers. There will always be lessons for you to learn. Sometimes it's, it's hard for a parent to learn from their kids. It's hard for kids to learn from their parents. It's hard for us to learn things from people that we think are a little difficult or we put in this category or the other. Who has something to teach me? What do I deserve? We are facing this now. People think they deserve a whole lot of toilet paper. Who has value? Well, I value myself, and I value mine. I val There's all these ways that we can tend to build walls. Who is close to God? We presume that the Lord, He's just away from these people, and He's with us right here, and He is, but... There are surprises that come our way. And who is in charge? We have a world right now that is just going crazy asking this question because we're waking up to the fact we can't control everything. And those times come when things are just beyond our reach and control. And there's a lot of fear and a lot of anxiety that comes with this. And so this is an opportunity for us as a church, I think, because we cast our cares on Jesus Christ. 
And any anxieties that we feel, we hand those over and entrust those to His care. And so we get to be a different kind of calm and peace. And when the world is going crazy, we can be there in ways to love. All right, so the three lessons I asked us to kind of remember from Acts 12, uh, the lesson on presumption. Be careful with this. We all make presumptions, and presumptions are a good thing generally. Uh, But when that turns into stereotyping and uh, there's a sense of pride with this or arrogance or that can become dangerous. And then we remember, what, look what happens when the church prays. Peter, he's locked up. He is given like 16 professional soldiers to guard him. I mean, it's a serious thing. And the church, they don't know what to do, but they earnestly pray. And then, and then the Lord answers. Remember, Peter is led out of that, that prison by an angel And he gets there, and he's knocking at the door, and the church is earnestly praying, and they're praying throughout the night, and they just can't even believe it. The servant girl first, she won't let him in, Rhoda, she's like, I hear Peter, and then they go into this debate. No, that can't be Peter for such and such reason. The Lord is doing more than they expect can even happen. So I think there was a lesson about expectation there. Are we expecting enough from the Lord? He's going to do more than we can ask or imagine. We trust in this. And then finally, there's a lesson for us on trust. It doesn't matter what forces are aligned against us. It doesn't matter all of the places of weakness and resistance and challenge that we face. If we are in step with the will of the Lord, He's going to get us where we need to go, and He's going to take care of all of our needs. As we become a church that trusts the Holy Spirit, and His leading and guidance, as we become a church that begins to take our relationships more and more serious, that begins to take the words of God more serious all the time, and not just knowing certain things, but applying those things to our lives, we'll become an unstoppable church. We'll be able to face anything that's thrown our way, any challenges that come our way. All right. But now in today's text, we begin another significant movement in the book of Acts. So there have been various kinds of evangelical activity that have taken place, and they're just kind of, oh, the Holy Spirit's here, and we're catching up to this here, and go down to this desert road, and there you will find someone there, and go, go talk to them about the the Ethiopian eunuch or, you know, the um, dreams and the visions and then being led to Caesarea. And so the Holy Spirit is trying to do new things. And it's taken a while for the church to catch up to this whole idea of the Gentile mission. But now we see a new level of intentionality with what the church is doing through this church in Antioch. So remember the church that has been the place of focus so far has been Jerusalem. And now that has shifted to this Antioch church, so that, the, that this has become a staging point for the mission of God. And uh, in today's text, we will see they're entering into a new kind of intentionality in God's mission. They're getting organized. They're making plans. They're very intentional about what's taking place. Chapter 13, verse 1, in the church at Antioch, there are were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, 
Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. So we're not told which ones are the prophets and which ones are the teachers, or which ones may have been both. Maybe they're all both. But the Holy Spirit, He's assembled this fascinating mix of people at this church in Antioch. We know something about Barnabas. He was this Levite and believer from uh, the Cyprus, one of the places that they're going. Lucius of Cyrene. Cyrene was a city in Libya, and so he's from this area of North Africa. And then Simeon called Niger in all likelihood. He was of African heritage as well. And Manian, who had been raised in a position of privilege and power. And then last of all, Saul is on this list too, a Pharisee and a former persecutor of the church. So the Spirit has brought together an ethnically and experientially diverse group of leaders in this Antioch church. And we understand, I think, more about the role of teacher, but, but at some point it may be good, to us to, uh, good for us to discuss more about biblical prophecy and what does it mean to be a prophet in the sense that they're using here. Uh, because there's a lot of richness there, and we're not sure what to do with those texts a lot of times. Uh, it was prophecy was a role that was crucial in the early church, and uh, Paul describes prophecy as a greater gift that should take priority over other gifts. In Acts, we will, will discover that this gift of prophecy, it's poured out on both men and women. Uh, but in brief, for our lesson today, just let me say that prophets, prophets are people who God uses to help us recognize and pay attention to the Lord's work among us. A prophet helps us step away from double-mindedness. A prophet helps us to give up half-heartedness or lukewarm faith. And there's a deeper call for us, deeper into love, deeper into commitment, deeper into relationship. So a prophet is someone who helps move us forward in faith. Sometimes a prophet will share an image or a word picture that calls for an individual or a church to discern its meaning. I think prophecy is proven true when it moves an individual or group of people into greater faith and greater obedience. That's, that's the way biblical prophecy works. Now, there's a lot more to it, and, uh, but it can be a beautiful thing. So, these people are there in this church in Antioch. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and set them off. So the Holy Spirit is asking for certain people to be set aside for certain purposes. Um, and notice that the time, what the time was when the Holy Spirit decides to speak. We know they've been fasting, but it's during their worship. It's during their worship that was taking place that the Holy Spirit speaks. It seems to me like fasting, along with their worship, raises their awareness and their ability to listen to the Holy Spirit. And the implication, I think, of this text and other texts like it is that Fasting combined with prayer, it's assumed that this is something that churches do 
that those things help us listen to God. We're letting go of this need for food or this need to fill this idea, and we're dedicating this, this time to a new place and this, this place of prayer. And prayer, when it, it grows, it becomes an act of listening uh, and conversation with the Lord. And notice also that it wasn't just an individual who hears the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is heard speaking by at least multiple people in this Antioch church. And they were open to letting the Holy Spirit interrupt their church service to direct them. Uh, We like our order of things. We know how and when things are supposed to happen. Uh, We're still trying to figure out the new protocols about how are we to be a community of faith amidst our need for social distancing or whatever that is. We're still, and we don't like it when our orders are interrupted and things get shooken up, shaken up. Uh, We have a certain number of songs that we sing. We always have the bread before the cup, and the offering follows after that, even though they say it's separate and apart. But, you know, and so we get, we get fussy about those things when they don't happen in the right way. And I, you know what? I think traditions are great, and praise God for them. But, uh, and I don't have a problem with any of this. But more than this, more than our rituals and our, our, our aversion to change and the things that we like done in a certain way and order, more than any of this, I long to become a church that can be interrupted and directed by the Holy Spirit. I long to be a church who can listen to the Spirit's instructions. I long to be that kind of preacher, uh, uh, that kind of individual. I long for that as a community of faith. I think, I wonder if the Lord finds it maybe sad, but maybe humorous when He prompts us and lays something on our hearts. And functionally, we're like, although we wouldn't use these words, but in, in a way, we're like, okay, the Lord convicts me of something. He gives me something to do. And I'm like, not now, Lord. I'm trying to worship you. Can't you see? I'm trying to do this for you. And Holy Spirit, would you please stop interrupting me? Can't you see I'm trying to have an experience right now? It's kind of funny, but I think we do that in some ways. Those little prompts that we are given that we don't act on, prompts that move us toward good and love and deeper relationship and steps of faith. And finally, in this verse, there's this instance of laying on of hands of Saul and Barnabas. It's a sign of commissioning. It's a sign of blessing. And it shows that they recognize the Holy Spirit's leading in all, the, uh, all that's taking place. And this church wants to be obedient to the Holy Spirit and what the Holy Spirit commands them to do. Then two of them, the two of them, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. It's interesting to me that it doesn't say that they are sent on their way by the Antioch church, but rather it's the Holy Spirit who sends them on their way. I think that this says something about the priority. The priority is not the church. 
The church is still playing catch-up to this thing with the mission of God. The priority is the Spirit of God that creates the mission of God that results in the church of God. The Holy Spirit is the one pushing and pulling mission. He is the one who goes before them. He is with His servants in their present moments, and He is the one that comes behind and takes care of things. And from their faithfulness, He grows faith in the hearts of other people. And so, it's just this whole work of God that is moving the church along into the mission of God. And when they arrived in Salamis, they proclaimed the Word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was there with them as their helper. So we've already met John Mark uh, at the family house in the church of Jerusalem. The Jerusalem church was meeting there in his mom's house. And he accompanies Saul and Barnabas from Jerusalem to Antioch. After uh, Saul and Barnabas, they take down a special collection for the Jerusalem church. It looks like John Mark joins them at that, part, at that point and goes back up to Antioch. And now he's going along with these two commissioned missionaries to be their helper. Uh, Mark was likely an eyewitness to the events from, of, of Jesus' life, at least some of them. He is the author of our second gospel in the New Testament, and we learn something about his shortcomings and his failures coming up as well. They traveled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. There they met a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet named Bar-Jesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul Sergius Paulus. Well, first of all, not only are we told that Bar-Jesus is a false prophet, but we can assume as much because, you know, Judaism and sorcery are not usually two things that are mixed together. And the irony of this text also is this man, Bar-Jesus, whose name means son of Jesus, acts anything but like but a, a, a son of Jesus. He shows himself to actually be an enemy of Jesus. And notice that this bar Jesus, he's attached himself to someone powerful. Uh, someone powerful who uh, is a wealthy benefactor, who could be wowed by strange and exotic stories and behaviors of a, a Jewish person among Greeks. And then it says this about this proconsul, the, he was an intelligent man, and he sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elamus, the sorcerer, for that is what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. So Elamus, uh, I think it means someone who, it, it can be used for wise, but it's a kind of worldly wisdom, I think, is what his me name means. Someone maybe streetwise, someone who has a wisdom that they're a little bit slippery, that they're a little bit crafty. And now his meal ticket is in jeopardy. He doesn't like the favor that the proconsul, his, his meal train, is starting to show to these people who are presenting the authentic message of the gospel. And so he's threatened by that and tries to turn people away from, from the message that Saul and Barnabas bring. Then Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elamus and said, You are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. 
You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You are going to be blind, and for a time you will be unable to see the light of the sun. At the beginning of this verse, did you notice that this is the time that Saul becomes Paul? I think there's some significance to that. It's something Luke is doing in his writing here. Saul didn't become Paul at his conversion. He didn't become Paul at his baptism or while visiting the apostles in Jerusalem or being persecuted by people who wanted to kill him. He had to be lowered over the, a wall in a basket and sent different places. Or, or after his time of preparation in Arabia or Tarsus, he didn't become Paul yet. It wasn't after Barnabas finds him in Tarsus and brings him back to Antioch. It isn't after he spends a year there as his teacher. Or after even the Holy Spirit set him apart for mission work. Why is it now that Saul becomes Paul? He is stepping out in faith in the mission of God. It is on mission with the Holy Spirit that Saul becomes Paul. And don't miss that it was just a few years back that Saul had been the one resisting the faith. Saul had been an enemy of Jesus Christ. Saul had been the one blocking the way of the Lord. So it's now, in a sense, that things have come full circle. <coughs> Saul had been a roadblock to faith in Jesus Christ. And now, in the power of the Holy Spirit, Saul is forcefully breaking through barriers to faith. He's breaking through barriers to faith in Jesus Christ. And it's also interesting to me that did you notice that the judgment that Paul pronounces on Elamus is the judgment he himself had received. When Jesus appeared to Saul, Saul was struck blind. You remember that? It was a few chapters back. We read that. And now Saul has become Paul, and he is in the place where Jesus was when Jesus appeared to him. And Elamus is the one who is struck blind. Paul knows that being struck blind by God, it saved his life. Because young and zealous Saul, he was hell-bent on destroying the church. He was an enemy of Jesus Christ. But the Lord's intervention that looks like judgment, it's actually the thing that saved Saul's life. And I'm amazed at how harsh Paul's language is here. It's harsh language. There's murmuring and complaining in our midst. I don't know. I don't, I'm not comfortable with Paul's language here. It just seems so over the top. But I think there's a lesson for us in that as well. 
because I want to be kind and gentle and encouraging with my words. But the truth is, there are some situations and some people that they're going to they're gonna live as enemies of the cross of Christ until the Holy Spirit helps give them a two-by-four upside the head, to use colloquial language. And Paul also knows he's not acting alone in this judgment. There are plenty of people who want to proclaim judgment on people. But this is together with the Holy Spirit, following the Holy Spirit's leading. And we need to be people who, in a church, we are loving and affirming. But that doesn't mean that we have to continue to enable dysfunctional patterns of behavior, enable sin to keep taking place among us. You know, people don't need more Christians who are going to come and say, you know what, it's not really that big a deal. Sin isn't that big a deal. We're all sinners anyway. It'll all work out in the end. Just do the best you can. We don't need to be a church that passes out band-aids and juice boxes and pats people on the head. It'll be okay, honey. We need to be a church that is so following so hard after the Spirit's lead that we will speak the difficult truths of love that people need to hear. And we'll trust the Spirit to help us to know how to say things in the right way. Because there will come a time when we need a church to say, hey, dummy, those drugs are killing you. Wake up. That porn, it's wicked. Get it out. Your video game addiction, it's destroying your marriage. Your refusal to get help you need for anxiety, depression, and mental health disorder, alcoholism, your refusal to seek any kind of help there, it's hurting the people you love. Your financial irresponsibility, you're living like a child. You're robbing the Lord, and you're destroying your relationships. See, Paul, he could see, and it says he could see that Elamus was full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. He's calling a black kettle a black kettle. And Elamus, he is a player here. He's playing a game with the things of God. And the closest thing that we have in Greek to the English here is this deceit and trickery. Think of a con artist. He's a false prophet, but this guy's a con artist. And con artists, they don't need to be coddled and tolerated or ignored. The most gracious thing that can happen in a situation like that is for them to be confronted and them to be judged and told to stop perverting the right ways of the Lord. That's a hard thing. Immediately, mist and darkness came over him, and he groped about seeking someone to lead him by the hand. The darkness of Elamus' mind now leads to the darkness of his sight. And when the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed. For he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. I think this is a great text, too. 
The miracle is not the thing that amazed the proconsul. The miracle was only a sign pointing to the amazing power of the gospel message. The amazing power of the Word of God. And it's this message that the Holy Spirit uses to change the human heart. From Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga in Pamphylia, where John left them and returned to Jerusalem. So, kind of a sour note as we end our text today, but it's also hopeful in the sense that how honest the Scriptures are. They, they portray the good, the bad, and the ugly. So, John Mark, he proves himself unreliable. He abandons the missionary effort that is underway, and we're not even told the reason why. And this, this text, though, it shows us how people and groups, uh, and the story of Scripture, it shows us how people and groups, the disciples, the people who were closest to Jesus, they make mistakes, and they have to learn to repent again and again and again. And when they learn, they grow, and when they grow, they become stronger. And they stop making the same mistakes over and over again. And they show us that in the end, it is the will of the Lord that prevails, even through human brokenness, frailty, and resistance. So I'm so excited that we're now into these missionary journeys in Acts. And just to help you understand the geography a little bit, uh, they started out in Antioch, where you can see the Holy Spirit sets apart Paul and Barnabas to be missionaries, and John Mark goes along as their helper. From there, they go down through Seleucia, they get on a boat, and they head over to Cyprus. By the way, I always thought Cyprus looks like a little miniature United States. I, I, don't, I don't know if any of you else had that ever that thought. So then they go across the island uh, rather quickly, and they come to Paphos, and Paul confronts a sorcerer there and blinds him. And from this point on, Saul becomes Paul. But then they hand, head over to Perga there, and John Mark deserts them at that place. So you can kind of see this, this movement of this first missionary journey. There's a few lessons that I think that we find just even in this brief uh, few verses from chapter 13. First, I think there's some significance to prayer and fasting, to helping us discern the will of the Lord. And I think that that's a tool that's given to us and that we need to find ways to take advantage of that, to help us in this process of listening to and relying on the Spirit. Second, Saul's become Paul's in the mission of God. In the mission of God, it can be right here in Eugene. It's that point where you are following the promptings of the Holy Spirit and you're trusting. And you maybe have been resisting Christ and now you are a Christ's man or woman, as the case may be, that you are speaking out on His behalf. You are facing challenges to your faith. It's when you go on mission that things change and Saul's become Paul's. And sometimes there comes a time that as the Holy Spirit leads us, we need to speak the hard words of love and confront sin. 
And that means in your own life. That means if you have a relationship of love and trust with others, that you say the words to them that other people aren't going to be able to say or other people can't say that they would hear it in a right way. Uh, and we have to trust the Holy Spirit to help us with this. And there, but there's hard truths that we need to speak sometimes and not shy away from. So, those are some lessons that I find from Acts chapter uh, 13 for us. Thank you for being here, you tough old birds. You good people. The Lord's going to take us where we need to go, and we're just going to trust Him and everything. So, there may, we may be mixing up a little bit our programming coming up and our public meetings and how we do all of that. Uh, we have to meet with the elders and let them uh, lead us in that protocol, but uh, we're also going to try to find a ways to get some of this sermon and our, our meeting times online. So, if people want to see what's going on or at least hear the sermons, that, that'll be up to date on our, our website or some other means. So, I don't know how these words strike you today or if they're a help to you, but hey, as long as God allows us to have these doors open, you can come here to put on the Lord in baptism, to ask for the prayers of this church, to receive those prayers. I don't know what your needs are or how these words, the Holy Spirit uses them. But if you have some need that you would like to make known to the congregation, uh, you can do that as we stand and sing now together.